0: Well, what a blessing to see you all here tonight. We are currently going through the book of Esther during our Wednesday night Bible study where the theme of the book is God's providence. And since it's been a few weeks since we last met together in this series, I want to refresh our minds on what's going on here leading up to this book. So God has brought severe judgment upon Israel's northern kingdom, the house of Israel. He allowed the Assyrians to come in and conquer them, take them captive, sow them among the nations. They never regained their identity again. They essentially became intermixed with the Gentiles. And it was meant as a warning to the house of Judah, get your act together. Well, they didn't. And about 125 years after, God allowed the Babylonians to come in and take the house of Judah captive, and they did retain their identity there for 70 years in Babylon. At the end of the 70-year captivity, God allowed the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, who God foretold of by name 150 years before he was ever born, he takes over and he releases the house of Judah or the Jews and... They were free to return to the land and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. However, only about 60,000 returned at that time. All the rest chose to remain in Persian exile, living outside of God's will. And when a people live outside the will of God, you've heard me say this many times throughout this series, God's providence takes over. And that's what we're witnessing here in the book of Esther. So here's a people who are living in a pagan land outside of the will of God, when they should have returned back to the promised land to rebuild their city, their temple, in order that they might properly worship God and show that there was a living God in heaven. But now things are a mess. And as we'll begin to see tonight, a wicked man named Haman rises up against the Jews with a desire to destroy them from off the face of the earth. If the house of Judah is going to be preserved, which is important here because God has promised the lion of the tribe of Judah, He still has to come on the scene. And in order for that to take place, God is going to have to preserve the house of Judah. And this is when God's providence takes over. Here's the people that are not in the will of God and they know better. And yet God made a promise that the promised seed would arrive. And so God's going to keep this house intact. He's going to bring them uh, protection through this time of Haman wanting to destroy them in order that God can keep His promise. Um, Thankfully, our God is all-knowing. And we've heard this a lot through this, but He knows the end from the beginning. And therefore, He is always ahead of our enemies. So before Haman ever comes on the scene, God's already ahead of him. He's setting the stage for Haman's demise by elevating a young orphaned Jewish lady to the position of queen over the largest empire in the world at that time. And I'm I'm glad God led me to do this study. It was not my original intent. We were going to continue through the epistles. But God led us here for such a time as this Because things are such a mess in our country nationally. Hey, if you're not plugged in, what took place Monday morning should alarm you. You say, what happened? Trump's home was raided. You need need to be plugged in. I cannot overemphasize the importance of that event. It's huge. And, And things in our nation are a mess before that, We're just seeing all these manifestations of how our nation needs to turn to God. And and we are now largely a people who are living outside of the will of God. You know, when we think about how God's working here in the book of Esther, I hope that it brings you comfort to know that despite things being a mess, God is at work. He's working behind the scenes. He knows what is taking place. He's moving pieces around on the world stage as He sees fit. Everything's going to end up working for His honor and His glory. His word will be fulfilled. And, and we as God's children ought to rest in that and never doubt that God's in control. It doesn't mean that it will be pleasant while we're going through it. And I, th- I think God's people sometimes lose sight of this, but but understand that Nationally, when things go wrong, God's people will feel the consequences of that. It's no different in your home. If if, if the father takes a wrong direction, it's going to impact the family. If our nation takes a wrong direction, it's going to impact God's children. It's going to happen. And so we still have to live under those consequences, even though we really don't want to do that, because we may not be the ones nationally, or let me rephrase that, we may not be the ones who are individually rebelling against God and it's happening nationally but we can trust that God is in complete control and and I certainly don't have time to recap all that we've covered so far Uh, I believe this is our this is our 12th week in this series and if you missed any of the lessons you should really take the time to listen to them because there's a lot of details that you need to be informed on to know exactly what is taking place here now before we begin tonight in the book of Esther I need to set the stage by asking you to join me in Exodus chapter 17 Exodus chapter 17, we will also be in the book of 1 Samuel, and then we will make our way to Esther chapter 3. So if you want to put a placeholder in all three, great. Let's look at verse 8 to begin with here in in Exodus chapter 17. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. So God has brought the children of Israel out of Egypt with great power and outstretched arm and God is now leading them to Mount Sinai and we find that the Amalekites have come out to war against Israel in Rephidim. Verses 9 through 13 here, we get the account that I think most of you tonight are familiar with, and that is Moses is up on top of the mountain, holding up his his staff, his arms, and as he holds up his hands, his arms, the children of Israel down in the valley, being led by Joshua in the battle, they are they are prevailing. But whenever his hands get heavy, then they are not prevailing. In Amalek, the battle takes a turn towards them. And so Aaron and Hur come alongside Moses, they give him a stone to sit on, and they hold his his arms up. They hold up the arms of the man of God. And, and Israel defeats Amalek that day with the edge of the sword. Look at the end of chapter 17, verses 14 through 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so God here is very clear that He is at some point going to put the remembrance of this people Amalek uh, out from under heaven. And then verse 16, Moses says, God will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Before this battle We know how Pharaoh and his army pursued Israel after they came out of Egypt. But in that instance, it was God who was fighting for them and drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. But here in Exodus 17, the very first battle that Israel is ever physically engaged against an enemy coming out of Egypt is the Amalekites. And God says, the day will come, I will destroy them. But for now, there will be uh, problems from generation to generation. You don't have to turn here, but Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19 say, Remember what Amalek did did unto thee by the way, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary." and he feared not God therefore it shall be when the lord thy god hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about in the land which the lord thy god giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of amalek from under heaven thou shalt not forget it but when they entered the land they didn't do what god said to do they got complacent and compromised they allowed the ites to live, including the Amalekites. They did not do what God said to do. And what you'll find throughout the book of Judges is the Amalekites rising up against the children of Israel. Now, leave Exodus chapter 17. Let's go forward about 425 years to 1 Samuel chapter 15. God never did forget what the Amalekites did against Israel when they came out of Egypt. Yeah, it's been over 400 years, but God's still keeping tab. And now the time has come that God is ready to destroy them from under heaven because they never amended their ways. 1 Samuel 15, look at verses 2 and 3. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Look at verses 7 and, uh, through 9. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah unto, until thou comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse that they destroyed utterly. In people's minds today, we, we read something like this and we think, boy, that sure is a Extreme for a loving God to issue such a command as to destroy everyone, women, children. Don't forget what the end of Deuteronomy said about the Amalekites. When Israel came out, it says they killed all of those that were in the rear of Israel. That would have been all those that were feeble, faint, and weary. Old timers, you'd have been dead. Ladies with children, you'd have been dead. That's who they picked off. They showed no mercy then. They continued to behave this way as a people for the next 425 years, and now God isn't going to show them any mercy either. By the same measure you meet, therewithal, it shall be measured to you again. In other words, don't forget we reap what we sow. But also, don't miss, God is long-suffering. He gives them 400 years, 425 years, the space of time for them to repent, but of course they refuse. And by God issuing the command to not only destroy the people, but also their animals, and that which gave them livelihood, some have suggested that Amalek becomes a picture of our flesh and how our flesh must be destroyed and how we shouldn't make any provision for our flesh. It's an application that makes for good preaching. You can do with it what you see fit. But Saul here, he does a sloppy job, and he disobeys God. Partial obedience is disobedience. He spares Agag, which is a name of a position, like Pharaoh and Abimelech. And and he spares the king, Agag. He keeps him alive and anything else that they considered to be good. Later on, Samuel he 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 has Agag brought before him. He has him hewn in pieces. Not bad for a prophet, amen. And he has him killed before chapter 15 is over. But Agag here is a single representation of Saul's incomplete obedience overall in not destroying all of the Amalekites. And we know that Saul failed miserably because. Before 1 Samuel's over, David's back to war with the Amalekites. Now what what, what does all this talk of Agag and the Amalekites have to do with what's taking place in the book of Esther? Let's go there. Some 550 years, 555, somewhere in that ballpark, years down the road, From 1 Samuel 15, 980 years removed from what took place in Exodus chapter 17 and Israel's first battle with Amalek. We read this in Esther chapter 3. Let's read verses 1 through 10. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes, That were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants which were in the king's gate said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then Haman was full, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day, and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them or to allow them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the Jews' enemies." In verse 1, we're introduced to Haman, who is the villain of this account in the book of Esther, and we're told that he is none other than an Agagite. At the end of verse 10, we're told again, I believe we are meant to take note of this, that he is an Agagite, and he is further described as the Jew's enemy. We are told twice in these verses who he is. And being an Agagite, it means he was a descendant of the royal line of the Amalekites. And the only reason he shows up in the book of Esther to cause such trouble for the Jews is because of Saul's disobedience five centuries earlier. Now, just imagine if King Saul would have obeyed God completely. Haman never would have existed. This account in Esther would have never happened this way. Because of Saul's disobedience in his lifetime, it would eventually lead to a young virgin girl who would be forced to lose her purity to a pagan man against her will. And the existence of the entire house of Judah, their entire existence would be in jeopardy. They would be on the brink of annihilation all these generations later. God knows the end from the beginning. God sees down the corridor of time. And God had a reason. God had a reason for commanding the Amalekites need to be destroyed. You know, understand, God didn't want the Amalekites destroyed because He loves death. God doesn't take delight in death, but God wanted the Amalekites destroyed. Get this, because God is good to His people. Therefore, God wanted the Amalekites exterminated because He knew of their desire to exterminate the Jews. And one day, a wicked Agagite by the name of Haman would come on the scene. And, and what we discover is that the wisdom of God far exceeds man's wisdom. God has a very definite reason for what He commands. Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14, Who hath directed the Spirit of the Lord, or being His counselor, hath taught Him? With whom took He counsel, and who instructed Him, and taught Him in the path of judgment, and taught Him knowledge, and showed to Him the way of understanding? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Romans 11, 33 and 34, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? 1 Corinthians 2.16 For who hath known the mind of the Lord that He may instruct him? God knows. He doesn't really need our input on it. Well, God, I tell you what you ought to do in Ukraine and Russia. How much better off would we be if we would just learn to trust the wisdom of God and obey it? We'd be better off as individuals, as families, as churches and as a nation. But in the mind of Saul and of the people that day, they thought there was wisdom in only partially obeying God to destroy the Amalekites and their possessions. And they tried to justify it by saying, well, we've kept back the good so we can offer it to God. To which, you know, Samuel famously replied, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. We We should not ever seek to justify our disobedience, ever. And you certainly should not seek to justify in the immediacy of the moment that it's being committed. Because God... Knows what we don't know. And God sees what we don't see. We may think it's just a trivial matter. We might even try to find a way to say, well, this is really for God. But the fact is, there's a, big, a bigger picture that God sees behind the scenes, into the future. So now in our text, we have this agagite who has this desire to eradicate the Jews. The only reason he comes on the scene is because of disobedience. Years, centuries earlier. Now, I wrestled with this, whether or not this is really telling us if he's a descendant of the Amalekites, but i tell you what really helped shape my opinion and say, yeah, I believe that he is, is when we consider who Mordecai is. And I believe this is where it gets even more interesting as we think about what's about to take place in this account. We have these two lineages that are about to cross paths again. In Esther chapter 2, you may remember over there in verse 5, it says, Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now I discussed that while we were over there, and I I don't want to rehash all that, but if we take this to, to understand that Kish is the same as the father of Saul, of King Saul, then Mordecai was the descendant of King Saul. And so if you're getting the picture in your mind here of what's taking place in Esther, back there in 1 Samuel 15, King Saul of Israel disobeyed God, kept alive Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and he did not utterly destroy them. And now here we are, 555 or so years later, we have a resurgence of the descendants of both. This is so interesting to me. And and now Mordecai, along with the house of Judah, they're being faced with extermination from the descendant of a people God said, you better destroy. And because of one man's disobedience of not fulfilling God's will, God's providence is now going to take over, and God will finally deal with the ungodliness of the Amalekites, the Jews' enemy... Because when Haman is destroyed, we don't ever read in the Bible again beyond the book of Esther anything about the Amalekites, Amalek, Agag, or the uh, Agagites. So this is very interesting. We have these two lineages intersecting again. Don't ever suppose. Now now whether you agree with, with all of that or not, the rest of what I'm going to say is still true although I'm going to apply it to this lineage. Don't ever suppose that your disobedience to a straightforward command of God won't have far-reaching ramifications. It'll definitely affect you. I think we all can understand that. But it can impact those in your house, those under your influence, and sometimes it may affect far more than we can ever imagine. And this is a sobering thought tonight to consider the potential consequences of our disobedience to God today and how it can ricochet down a lineage tomorrow. Yeah. Listen, our actions today can negatively impact the generations to come. Or it can bless them. So are you living in disobedience to God? And I mean to tell you, I got under conviction when I, when I prepared this. And God said, I, you got you to stop. You may think it's a small matter and you may think it only affects you but our sin has a way of impacting others. Abraham impacted his lineage for the better when he came out of Ur of the Chaldees. Moses impacted his lineage for better when he came out of Egypt. After Joshua, they impacted their generation negatively the generations to come because they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. David had a negative impact on his house when he had an affair with Bathsheba, had, your, had her husband Uriah the Hittite killed, and God said, the sword's not going to depart from your house. And, and it didn't. After that, chaos ensues in the house of David. Solomon negatively impacted generations to come because he disobeyed God, and God said, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. It's going to be written too. While at Silver State Baptist Youth Camp this year, Brother Dean Herring gave a powerful sermon on the link between successive generations. For those who were there, you'll remember that sermon. And he talked about how we have an opportunity to break the chain, whether for good or bad. And, and, and we can change the direction of a lineage. He gave the illustration of the contrast between the lineages of a man named Max Juke and Jonathan Edwards. Now, I tried to verify all this, and I found there's conflicting reports, so I gave up trying to verify it at all. But what I did find is that there is truth to the overall emphasis. So whether there's some discrepancy in the finer details of the numbers here, just listen, and you'll get the point. Max Juke and his brother married ungodly women, Neither believed in God and the Bible. They despised the idea of a Christian upbringing for their children, and they decided they would raise their children apart from God. They had 1,026 descendants. 300 died prematurely because of their lifestyle. Most Most of the rest lived their life in poor health because of their sinful habits. 140 served prison time, averaging 13 years each. 190 were involved in harlotry. 440 were drunkards, 7 were murderers, 60 were thieves. And the account goes that they were so steeped in immorality and legal problems that it cost the state of New York millions of dollars in today's money over a 100-year span. And, And the bottom line is that their lineage was marred from disobedience to God and ungodly living. On the other hand, during that same time, there was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He became a Christian. He married a woman who also knew the Lord. After graduating from Yale in 1720, he became a preacher, and he famously preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which essentially sparked the first great awakening. He and his wife had 729 descendants. 300 were preachers, 65 college presidents, 13 were university presidents, 60 were doctors, 60 were authors, 3 were congressmen, 1 was vice president, 285 were college graduates, 75 were military officers. And the only one who ever cost anybody any money in the state of New York was their grandson by the name of Aaron Burr. He was the vice president who had the quarrel with Alexander Hamilton and killed him in a duel in 1804. Aren't you glad we don't do things that way now? But he married a very questionable woman. Now, the the point in that illustration is that our decisions today matter they can impact down the road, generations to come. Now, understand, we, and, and I believe you understand this, each person has to make their own decision. Um, I, I don't care what your, your upbringing is, you make your own decision, you decide whether or not you follow the Lord. But there's a reason why the Bible has such an emphasis on how we live our own life and how we raise our children. And, and the reality is, what we do isn't about us alone. But it has far-reaching consequences, both good and bad. So what kind of heritage are you hoping will exist after you're gone? Then you ought to live your life accordingly. When when I accepted God's call to the pastorate here, I had much more in mind than just me. Trust me, if it was just about me, I'd be in Tennessee, sipping sweet tea in the shade, catching smallmouth bass out of the Clinch River. And nobody's excited about that, amen. Um, Obviously, I had my wife in mind, but, but what God really laid heavy on my heart is this. You can go to the hills of Tennessee and you can live out the rest of your life if you want to there, but your children may miss out on God's best for their life. Now, keep in mind, there was nothing ungodly for my family to follow me to Tennessee. They were not doing anything wrong. The only one sinning would have been me because him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. But I knew deep down in my heart that if I didn't obey God, then my heritage might very well be negatively impacted by my disobedience to God. And I'm not saying that's how God might do things in in your life. I don't know, but I am saying this is what God very definitely gripped my heart with back there when all this was going down. Now, some of my kids may go on to be knuckleheads. And some of you may think they already are. (laughs) And of course, I pray that they won't be, right? But I will have the peace of knowing it won't be because I took a wrong turn. I hope you're hearing me tonight. You need to live in obedience to God's Word because that will give you a greater hope of your lineage making godly decisions which will lead to God's definition of success in their life. Now, I know nothing's a guarantee. We have a free will. But I trust you understand what I'm trying to communicate. And perhaps the victory over sin in your life through Christ, perhaps God is calling you to deal with that today. Listen. I don't have to convince you of the sin that's in your life. You know what it is. You know what your your besetting sin is. You know what it is you keep running to. And if you don't deal with that, it might impact the generations to come. So you need victory through Christ. Because you can't win that battle on your own. But perhaps if you would... if if you would determine that you're going to work on getting victory over that, that sin that doth so easily beset you, that in your fighting that, it might prevent a future generation from fighting the very same Amalekite as you're facing tonight. So are there some Amalekites in your life? Is God commanding you to destroy those things? Don't compromise on it. Don't think it will only affect you. Would you pray with me please?